Welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. For those keeping score at home, this is episode 17. My guest today is Salim Reshamwala. Salim is a videographer based here in Durham, North Carolina. Our relationship dates way back to my early days at Runaway. Even if his name doesn't sound familiar, there's a good chance you've seen his work if you've been following me over the last decade. I don't know how you could have missed the North CAC video. Salim has been one of my fondest relationships in the business. He is incredibly wise and considerate, always tinkering and experimenting. He never settles for the status quo and is constantly thinking about how we can improve everyday life through an out-of-the-box approach. You'll hear some of that in our conversation as we discuss the future of education and how technology has changed his own approach to filmmaking. As always, thank you for listening. I can't say that enough. It continues to be a really hard year and then some, but this show and this work at Buddy Ruski has been an anchoring force of positivity for me and hopefully for you as well. I look forward to bringing great stories to you for years to come, but I could use your help. I'm sure some of you have heard the phrase, trying to buy back your time. Well, that's where I am right now. With so many ideas and limited time, I'm working on other things to honor my financial responsibilities. I dream of a day when I can make podcasts and videos and write with every waking minute of every day, bringing you the stories you so deserve. This is where you come in. Consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to fuel this engine to its max capacity. If you are already a subscriber, I thank you sincerely. Well, without further ado, here's my conversation with Salim Reshamwala. Bring the horns in. Salim Reshamwala, thanks so much for being on the Busky Rudy Show today. Thank you for having me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it's taken us this long to do it. I'm glad to be here. I know. I think the last time that we chatted on mic was maybe for Super Empty with our buddy Ryan and, uh, and Holland as well for the Super Empty podcast back in maybe 2018. So it's, it's yeah, I think we, that was that's right. We were discussing the This Is America video and then... Um, yeah, we, we dove into North CAC and, and some videos I've directed and just kind of chatted about hip-hop music videos. Which I know has been when I first became uh, aware of your career, that was what you were doing. Pretty connected to Tune and Law, doing music videos yep. for them. But obviously, you have built up the skills and talent to, to get to that point and do all the amazing things that you do. So I'd really love to start way back when and just have you talk a little bit about how you got where you are um i know you've bounced around a little bit you are not a north carolina native so maybe how you got to north carolina or you are a north carolina native actually i i you know i consider myself from here but i didn't actually move here till i was let's say i moved here when i was 12 so you know i think of myself as a southerner i moved to the south when i was four born in jersey but moved to the south when i was four so you know jersey hasn't done much to to try and keep me or to, to claim me um i grew up in in pensacola florida which is in florida but on the panhandle so very southern i i don't know if you know this about florida but the farther north you are in florida the more southern you are culturally in florida 
huh. Okay. I will try to figure that out. I do have a college degree, so I think I can <laughs> make that work. Uh, we will certainly claim you here in the South. I appreciate um, it. So, but yeah, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about getting to North Carolina, um, what it was like growing up in the panhandle in Florida, how that might have shifted your perspective a little bit, and then how you got into to storytelling really as a profession. Yeah, you know, I mean, my dad is a storyteller. If you ever meet him, you're going to hear him tell stories. And, you know, I, I, he grew up in, my dad's from Mumbai, India, formerly Bombay, which is how I always heard it in stories. And ever since I was little, I always heard him, you know, just telling wild stories about the block that he's from. So, you know, I, I always feel like my origin always starts with my parents. Um, my mom is born in Japan, you know, so was just hearing like kind of international stories a bunch. And my dad's stories, you know, he's from this neighborhood called Bindi Bazaar, which is... I later found out there's actually a genre of like kind of B-grade gangster movie that takes place in Bindi Bazaar. It's not actually like super dangerous. It's just like this weird image that occurred. But my dad would have all these crazy stories. Like, you know, he'd tell me about uh, a guy in front of his house who had a mannequin with bells so that kids could practice being pickpockets. They try and pick the pickpocket, the pockets of the mannequin without ringing a bell. You know, like just all these like kind of wild stories like him being a kid and um, entering a science fair uh, around the time of Sputnik and claiming that he was contacting Sputnik and winning this school competition and it later causing a ton of problems when it was revealed that he had, this is terrible, uh, but he was a kid. Uh, he had a little tiny battery that was shocking a, a little mouse <laughs> inside a box and claimed that he was getting signals from Sputnik, but it was a mouse being agitated. You know, the, the mouse was fine. He kept the mouse as a pet. The mouse went on to do great things. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the mouse will pretend the mouse was better for it. You know, if you're listening, don't don't shock a mouse, but uh, be happy for this mouse because I'm sure it's fine. So, yeah, you know, I just heard those kind of stories growing up and, you know, lived lived. Like I said, you know, grew up in the South, um, which is a very Pensacola, Florida was a very like we lived in a very front porch, iced tea out of a glass jar, typical Southern suburb, you know, 15 minutes from the beach. So, you know, headed back and forth a bunch there. But like the thing that I would say is I did and I didn't put this together really until later, like the. There were no other mixed race kids in my orbit as a as a little kid. And um I like, you know, self-interpreted that as like I am weird, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't really think all the time of like, oh, I'm weird because, you know, like I wasn't always like, oh, I'm a mixed race kid, that's why I'm weird. But like I like kind of embraced it. There's this tape in my house of a show I made called Weird Max Radio Show. And it's like this radio show that I made my brother and sister help me with. I didn't, we didn't watch baseball in my house. I didn't know anything about baseball. And I had a whole sports segment where I narrated a baseball game. It's insane. It's like the, the, <laughs> there's just me yelling random baseball f- phrases with names that I had heard. So it's like Ronald Reagan sliding into first base. <laughs> You're listening to weird max radio. We're really weird. Like just, you know, wackiness. That's I, I really think it did have Ronald Reagan sliding into first base, and moved to North Carolina when we were twelve. Yeah, no, it was twelve. It was, I was twelve. Yeah, I moved moved to North Carolina when I was twelve. That's right. Moved to Mooresville first. Mooresville, North Carolina when I was twelve, and you know had 
switched schools like four times in two and a half years and was always trying to like, you know, find a way to fit in. Right. I, and <laughs> when I went, I went to West Cary uh, and I remember this, I was there for like, you know, six months or something. And I remember this girl was like, the clothes you wear, were they cool where you came from? <laughs> It was like just, you know, I was just brutally jumping between, you know, schools. When you're like 12, every school is so different, you know, and every school has its own subculture. It's not like part of a scene where, you know, so you just don't know how to be cool in this new place and you're you're trying to figure it out. And And you're the oldest of three. Is that right? Yeah, I'm the oldest of three. Yeah. Yeah. Did your siblings have a similar experience or were you able to blaze a path for them in any way? No, it's a great question. I didn't realize until I was in my 20s that I was talking to my brother about being mixed race. And he was like, what? And I was like, uh, you know, like, we're mixed race. And he was like, oh, yeah, but I, mean, but I just thought of myself as an Indian kid. And it's because he just looks more Indian than me. So, you know, so much of, of race and ethnicity, it's it's weird because there's, there's how you identify yourself. And obviously that's important. But there's also just like you can kind of, for practical purposes, become what you're perceived in some ways, you know? So, um, no, I think, I think, uh, for all of us, it was, we've all had like racial unusualness in our lives, but yeah, you know, I I actually remember really the moments where I was like, felt like, Oh, I'm kind of good at this weird thing. Or like, maybe it's not even about being good at it. It's just like being really in the zone and, and, and feeling like, Oh, I'm flowing while I'm doing this weird thing. Which, I, when I was in seventh grade, I had this great teacher, Miss Ramey, and I used to always get in trouble in her class, and she'd make us write essays. and As punishment. If, as punishment. And I, I, don't, I would love to talk to her about this, but I think after a while, she was just like basically assigning me essays, you know, uh, like creatively assigning me essays. I would write insane essays about like, you know, I don't know, I'd be writing about like why I shouldn't talk in class, and somehow there'd be like... It might disturb like the ghosts of dead soldiers, like these just insane, like surrealistic essays. I mean, maybe she hated them and maybe I'm making this all up in my head, but I had a friend, Andy McLaurin, who somehow never got in trouble. If you're listening to this, Andy, um, I don't know, man, Bobby alleged yourself did. <laughs> I still see the dude around, <laughs> but he never got in trouble. He never had to write essays, but I remember uh, him and some of my friends would read the essays and laugh a lot. And that was like, kind of like, Oh, like I'm entertaining people. And that was a school, Apex Middle School was where I like started fitting in. And it was by like being goofy and telling stories and stuff like that, you know? So that was kind of the start of it. If you're looking for like the real start, start. And how did your parents decide on, on Florida and then North Carolina coming from that was all, across that was all, the world? You know, yeah, my dad, um, my dad just worked for a company, a chemical company that, that had him moving around, you know, that was an era where like lots of companies were like consolidating headquarters, you know, and eventually so many companies had their headquarters moved to North Carolina. So tons of kids were getting transferred into this area around that time. I'm assuming that's thanks to research triangle park. Yeah. Yeah. That's in, all, that's in, all in RTP, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you, you end up in North Carolina when you're 12 and you start to build a knack for storytelling. You said that your dad, like I think many of our elders are great storytellers and have lots of wisdom that they're able to pass along. Was, were they 
I mean, I know that the stereotype for a lot of immigrant parents is pushing their children into very specific fields. Did you have any of that pressure when you were growing up to sort of fulfill a uh, pathway or was storytelling a potential option for you at that age? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think in my parents' defense, I mean, I think, you know, my dad, you know, really had done the typical immigrant story and it had come from not a lot in India and it really worked his way up. And I, I think I didn't make it easy for them because I didn't understand what I was doing. Like I wasn't really making a clear pitch of like, hey, I'm going to do this thing and here's why it's going to be okay. You know, I was just like, like, I remember like I, there was a cereal called Blueberry Morning and I read the back of the box of this Blueberry Morning cereal and it was like, you awake in the morning, you walk behind your small house and into the blueberry fields. The sun is, it was like this insane story about like how you're picking blueberries. And I'd only ever seen like crossword puzzles on the back of cereal boxes or whatever. And I saw that and I was like, yo, this is what I want to do. I want to write cereal boxes. And I was pretty small, but like that like started this thing where I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to write like this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And I just say super random stuff, you know? So I wasn't really like presenting a clear plan <laughs> to my parents. So they, they were maybe, you know, justified in uh, wanting to have, my dad, you know, especially was you know, maybe justified in wanting to have a better understanding of what the heck I was was going to do. Um, and I was really unclear, you know, like I went to college and didn't really like came in as computer science, not even knowing that at the time UNC didn't really have a computer science major. It was like bundled into the math department. Um, when was this? You know, this is like I graduated in 96. OK, so um, I graduated high school in 96. So, you know, it wasn't actually that people weren't programming computers at UNC at the time. It was just like under the math degree. And I didn't really understand that. And there's a lot, if you're not from a family where everyone kind of went through, like let's say if you're going to a liberal arts school and you're not from a family where everyone went through a liberal arts school, there's like a lot of confusing steps in that. Like I applied to such a random sampling of schools, you know? And once I got there, didn't really know that like like I've talked to friends now who are like I met with my advisor every week and figured out and I'm like I didn't do any of that stuff I could tell you having graduated in 2008 and also going into college as a computer science major that not much had changed in those 12 years (laughs) it's one of the craziest things that like you know college is a lot to navigate and um so much of it is just random chance did either of your parents have any college experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my dad, you know, my dad got a master's in chemistry. Okay. Um, you know, it was, it's a much clearer path. You know, it's kind of a science-based path, and and he finished that in the U.S. So he did his undergrad, you know, in, in India, and did his, his master's here. My mom is a, a nurse, so um, you know, and she was always just very open to whatever I was doing, but but you know, had you know, kind of a clear path behind her. And I just think it's like you show up at a liberal arts university and there's this cool idea of like, oh, like you can do anything, but you don't know what anything is. I don't mean that in like a, a disparaging way about like youth don't know. Any, I, I just mean it in a literal sense of like, like I worked as a graphic designer coming out of college, but coming into college, I did not know what a graphic designer was. And I don't think that's that unusual. You know, maybe it's somewhat more common now, but like. There's just so many professions where, you know, you, you, here's a thing I think about, like, 
letting my 18-year-old self plan my current day and what I do for money is an insane idea. <laughs> you know, like in the sense that like an 18-year-old wouldn't let a 12-year-old plan his day. You know, like it's just asking like asking people to make decisions for their future selves without a lot of knowledge is pretty hard, man. Yeah, and with a liberal arts degree of any kind, really, whether it's doing something like graphic design or being a psychology major or any of those, there are so many, well, I shouldn't say there are so many opportunities, but with the exception of like, you know, a psychology major becoming a psychologist in a very practical sense, there aren't really like concrete, the, the, the career that you take or the path that you take is a little more abstract. And even with something like graphic design, it's like, okay, cool, you can draw, but like, how do you start to find jobs that will pay you to draw? Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, with engineering or, you know, so, you know with something as a, like being a nurse, it, it seems like it's a pretty simple path you you know you go you learn how to be a nurse and then you go to a hospital or a doctor's office and you just be a nurse at a place where everyone knows that you know you can find nurses whereas like graphic designers and i'm sure it's changed over time but it seems like it's not as simple or obvious yeah and you know the other thing is nobody knows what everyone else is doing all day like, I don't even, even as an, as a full grown adult, like I don't, what are my friends doing all day? Like they tell me some job title. I don't really know what the day in day out of that job is. Right. So I, you know, I heard this quote once I'm going to butcher it, but it's basically like, it was like, Oh, do you want to be a novelist? Great. Okay. So you might say yes to that question. And if somebody rephrases it and they're like, do you want a to sit in a room all day alone making up lo- complicated lies about the world? No, I don't want to do. But that's what a novelist is. Like you don't know what <laughs> right. what that is all day. You know, like a filmmaker. You don't. It, it's hard to see what the full day of an average day of a filmmaker is because these things aren't always super fascinating to explain bit by bit. You know, or in a thirty second TV commercial or whatever. So people's day-to-day lives are such a mystery until you've actually tried it. Um, you know, I heard this, this quote that I, I think about a lot and uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher it again. I, it's, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like, at first I thought I should f- figure out what I wanted to do so I could go in the world and do it. But then I learned that I should go into the world to do things to figure out what I want to do. And that's really stuck with me. I, I want to say I'm butchering a Hemingway quote, which, I mean, that sounds kind of classic. If you butcher right? it bad know. enough, I think you can just claim it as your own. Yeah, so. yeah, maybe that's what I, I should just push it far enough that it's my own. Yeah, we'll give it five or six more iterations. And when it actually doesn't make sense, then I'll actually claim it as my own. But yeah, the gist of it just being that, like, I just think we're asking, it's a lot when you're in college to try and really make an accurate guess. I mean, much less when you're 18 and you, like, declare whatever rando major you put on a paper is to make an accurate guess as to like what you want to do for a certain number of hours every day when you don't know what that life is like. I think you're spot on. There's so many, I think the college, college education reform is coming 
very soon uh if it's not here already and just you know when you couple people going into college and not knowing what they want with the enormous amount of debt that we're all going into to do that it it seems like a a, a bygone era to go straight into four-year college knowing what you want right at 18 and coming out with a job that's going to pay you well enough to buy a house, buy a car, get, you know, get married, have a career, that sort of thing. And, and you're right. I mean, I changed majors three times in the span of four years, part of that being in school, part of it, not like I came in as a computer science major, stayed in college for a semester, you know, was out of school for a year, went back to drum tech thinking I was going to become a teacher about a year later, changed my mind and wanted to be a English literature major ended up being a communications major, which is comparable, but not quite the same thing. And yeah, it's just like, but, but a lot of it came from experience. Like you said, yeah. it came from the different things, the different jobs that I had over that time, the different things I was exposed to over the time, the people I encountered shifted my perspective and I became more familiar with what it was that I was good at and where that met the like opportunities that were available to me and what I wanted to spend my time with every day. And so, yeah, I, I can't imagine in the next 10 years that post high school education slash like career development will look like it did when we were con coming up. Well, you know, I always wonder what would something like college look like if it didn't exist? If somebody was like, okay, cool. So, um, you know, we have this, we have right now we have all this, this background knowledge that actually kind of confuses us, right? Like, so we know that just about the best way for anyone to go up in, um, I'm going to use like just, you know, really rough terminology, but like in class, like for, for lack of a better word, like it, an easier way to put it is just like purely brutally speaking in income bracket, like in general, if your family is in a lower income bracket and you want to go to a higher income bracket in America, on average, going to college is a good way to do that. But that's not like what college was designed for originally way, way back in the day when these like academies were first kind of like formed. And if you were trying to redesign the system, like I, I'm curious and more power to people for whom the current system works, they should definitely keep using the same system. I, I'm curious, like what would it be like to do? What if you went to college a year, once every three years and, you know, spread it out? over like whatever you know 16 years or whatever it is you know um and you're going to college for like whatever the number is for you you know the number is eight years it's 12 years it's like you know whatever it is and you were able to do deep dives like i would love to do a year of college right now that sounds amazing and it would be a very very different experience than when i was there yeah i it's funny you say that because i over the course of this year during the pandemic one of the first things that I thought about when the initial stimulus checks came in, it was like, what classes is Durham Tech offering right now? You yeah. know, it's just like, I, you know, I didn't have the time or, you know, I, I guess maybe I had the finances, but didn't have the time to, uh, to really think about going back to school when I was working full time. But now it's like, man, I have all this free time on my hands. This would be a great opportunity to like, you know, learn something or relearn something or like, you know, pursue something that I'm mildly interested in and see if there's a career path in that. And uh, yeah, the, the taking 
a year of college every three years mentality is, is a pretty interesting rabbit hole that would be worth exploring. And it's, it's cool because, you know, there's a few things that college offers which are great. Well, I mean, one is it's great to be able to take super random stuff that you have no idea if you're going to use, but you're super interested in, right? So that's, that's one area where it's like a huge blessing and gift, and it's hard maybe when you're 18 and it's the first time you're living away from home to dive into everything in the same way that you, you might um, when the timing is right, you know? But the, the other thing that's interesting about what you're talking about now is like, okay, so right now you just, at the, right before we got on the phone call, you were talking about like a, a, a class you took this morning. And it's like, that's a class where you're going to apply that knowledge um, maybe tomorrow, you know? Like <laughs> if, if I was to offer you this book and it's like, a five-minute lesson on what to do when you're attacked by a bear, you might be like, cool, man, I'm I'm kind of busy right now. But if I was like, bro, we're five minutes away from a bunch of bears and you don't really have a choice, like we're going to about to be around a bunch of bears, you're going to really read that book. You know, and like, um, so you know, even this year, I'm taking like tons of, I'm actually taking like three online courses about stop motion right now because I had a couple stop motion projects and because it's quarantine madness and we don't know uh it's hard to schedule physical interaction with other people, but I know I can film things in my shed, so that's what <laughs> I'm going to focus on. But all those classes are getting applied super immediately, right? So I, I've actually, you know, throughout my career, I, I've, I've I've gotten a surprising amount of value from, you know, online courses or, or I didn't go to film school, but I, I have spent money on like two-day seminars or whatever to, to learn as I go. I wonder if, so there is something, like I have this idea in my head of, for all the folks that, uh, you know, our parents, they start these college, if if we're lucky enough, you know, there's a college savings that's happening throughout our life. And then when we get to uh, 18 and we're thinking about school, we either take out more money or, you know, maybe our, our families are able to cover it, but we have this like lump sum of money that we're about to put towards education. And if you were to just take that money and say, okay, here are a couple things that I'm interested in, to your point. Like, let me take one class. Let me just drop 300 bucks or whatever it costs to take this one course and see, like, do it. Because I think for me, I could have saved a whole semester of college if they had just told me, you're, you're actually going to hate C++. <laughs> and so you shouldn't become a computer scientist. I would have been like, okay, cool. Like, then I probably shouldn't be going to college right now for that. Maybe I'll get a job being, you know, working at Best Buy or something like, you know, something that's going to, because I'm somewhat interested in computers, but like clearly I don't want to be a programmer. So let me actually like get a job, you know, get an entry level position and kind of figure this out. And then when I finally decide, oh, actually, you know what? I do want to be a teacher because I did, I worked at these summer camps a couple summers. And then you go full force into becoming a teacher of whatever certifications you need, you can like, you've got this lump sum of money that you can kind of put down for further education, but you're not just committing four years upfront to, because it does seem like most people kind of just do the four years straight, no matter what, at least when I was, you know, yep. coming up in school, that was the thing. It's like, even, even something like doing a semester abroad or a gap year or anything like that was pretty rare compared to what I think is a, a little bit more normalized now. But, you know, to have this uh, 
you know, to, to break it up in that way and just say like, okay, it's cool to just, you know, to save all this money up to go to, to put towards education, but maybe it doesn't have to be at a four-year institution right after high school. You know, I've wondered this, because one of the things you're hinting at too is, you know, what, what else could you use that money with? I was, I was, I was, I had a meeting with, um, there's this really awesome program out of SVA in visual narrative, a uh, school of visual arts in New York. And I, I met with the Dean um, you know, to talk about maybe becoming a student there, it costs seventy thousand dollars to get that education. It's still tempting to me, um, but it's a lot of money. And you know, I was having a conversation with him. And he was like, "What other programs are you looking at?" And I was like, "I'm actually looking at what else I might do with seventy thousand dollars." <laughs> like, I, this is actually at the time I was like, "This is the only program I'm looking at." And you know, I've wondered like, "Oh, it's." There's there's weird psychological stuff around it. So for example, let's say that that uh, <laughs> let's say that um, you know I posted on social media like, "Hey guys, I'm going back to school to get my master's." I feel like lots of people would be like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" Like, I, I think it would be cool. I think it'd be super fascinating. I'd love to do it. I just I think a lot of people would be like, "Whoa, I respect that!" Like, you've been out of school so long, and now you're suddenly going back. Like, you know, like it just it's a a, a cool narrative, right? If I post it on 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 Facebook, I'm gonna just not earn money, and my family is gonna go into debt for a few years until it's hit about like seventy k of debt. And during that time, I'm gonna like read books and make stuff and talk to people. I think there would be like an intervention. Like I think people would be like, "Yo, Salim, you've got to take care of your family. Like you can't just." You got two kids, man. You know, but but we're saying the same thing, and one has that officializer on it, right? You know, and like there's all these theories about what college does and doesn't do, right? So one theory is that it does nothing. Like one theory is that it's a you know uh, what it is for a, in a lot of cases, which is you know a condensed four year education that makes you better at doing things. Another though is that it's like a sorting system. Like it just tells an employer like, oh, this person is you know reasonably on time enough to complete things for four years and get a degree maybe maybe yeah maybe <laughs> or they are like very good at like charming their teachers and advisors right um and then the other is you know that it's like this officializer and that's even this this like vague thing where you don't you don't know why but when someone says oh i'm a if someone says you know i i have this degree from somewhere you might not even know what goes into that degree but some subconscious part of your brain is like oh like oh this is this is real you know, right. like I when I meet someone, I've even made the mistake of like meeting people who went to film school and just assuming that they're going to know how to do a certain film job that, you know, maybe they haven't actually had that much real world experience with, you know, and, and folks who haven't been to film school, but have, you know, just been on set or just, you know, are super organized, might have a better approach to it. So I myself, <laughs> as a person who hasn't been to film school, have made that mistake of assuming that someone who's been to film school is very good at something at, at all these different things when they may or may not be, you know? You know, I was having this conversation with a friend about business school. And again, like I don't mean to delegitimize any of these organizations or these degrees. Like if if you go in and you do the right work and the timing is right and you're not being pushed into debt, like go for it, you know? Um, and maybe even if you are being pushed into debt, I'm just terribly afraid of debt. And so, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend about business school and I was like, I just don't really fully understand what you learn in in business school. Like just n not not that I'm 
doubting it. I just don't know. Like, I don't know what you learn in a master's in chemistry because I just don't know enough about chemistry. So like, what, what skills will you come out of business school with? And he was like, actually, you know, it's not about the skills. It's about the network. I was like, oh, cool. How much is business school? Well, you know, I think I'll spend about 120K on it. Bro, give me 120K and tell me who you want me to meet and I'll meet them for a <laughs> Like, I'll, like, what? <laughs> like, I'll just throw $10,000 parties for, you know, 12 weeks. If I threw a $10,000 party and invited people, I mean, what? I, I don't know. There's just got to be some, there's got to be some way to make 100, if, if 120K is just to meet people. And I know it's circumstantial. Like, when you meet someone, and the it's like contextual, right? So like if I, if you meet me and I'm whatever, I'm like uh, hosting a podcast and, or making a film, like you might not think of me as a business person, right? So it's contextual. Like you can even, you can have great respect for someone, but not have it be in the business context. And then I won't, you won't approach me about a business deal or whatever. But even given all that, man, it just seems like when the answer is just, it's for the network or like, that that's where it it does seem it does seem like if you're super rich then great but like it it's it's and I'm not you know dunking on anyone who's made the decision because clearly it works for a lot of people but it just seems very high risk you know yeah yeah I agree and I think that uh, there I this you made this point to me a few years ago and it really stuck with me you were talking about a, a similar idea maybe the same idea about like you know could you pay you know, $20,000 to go back to school, or could you pay somebody who you admire, like, you know, $20,000 to like, like be their apprentice for six months or something, you know, like how to your point about networking, like, you know, is there yeah. a way to get, get a more direct, uh, have more direct access to the information and the guidance that you want, as opposed to having to go through this giant institution, or all these different loopholes that may only give you 30% of what you're actually looking for, but it has, you know, this prestigious university's name written on it. And so that, you know, does something to your point about uh, like contextualizing and uh, officializing that degree or that like, you know, badge that you're wearing. Um, yeah. that, that's what a lot of your money seems to be going towards. Yeah, and, you know, again, if it works for you, it works, and that's awesome. There's there's no fault in that. It's everything everything that works in the world, you know, that you've done without harming other people is great. Good. So the, I, like, the yeah, I, remember, I remember, like, one of the things around that conversation was, like, what if I just chose filmmakers who were just a little bit better than me or significantly better me, than me? There's plenty of those who exist, and I could just be like, hey, here's, I'm going to give you a thousand $1,000 a month for 12 months. And I'm going to choose three different filmmakers. So, you know, each filmmaker I spend four months with, I give them $1,000 a month. And the only conditions are I get to hang out with them for at least three hours a day and I'll do things they ask me to during those three hours. Like, that seems like a not bad deal for them. And I'd certainly learn more about their processes than, you know, by reading about their processes. Again, I'm not necessarily advocating these. I just think that it's really cool to think super experimentally about how you might learn and how you might spend $12,000 rather than $100,000, you know?
I don't want to think about money as much as I do, but I'm a freelancer, so I have to think about money. And that, that really falls into that bucket that we were talking about earlier of like, if you asked me 10 years ago, like uh, when I wasn't a freelance filmmaker, freelance, you know, videographer or freelance podcast, whatever these things, things are, if you were like, oh, you know, what's your, what's going to be one of the biggest shifts in your thinking? I, I would not have guessed how much time I had to spend thinking about money and thinking about business and thinking about, and I don't mean that in like, <laughs> you would assume that I live a much more glamorous life than I do if if you hear how much I have to think about this stuff sometimes. But even just to, to you know, to survive while you're not making that much money, you have to think about money a lot, you know? I mean, even though I've, I, I feel like I've been quite lucky, there were definitely times when, you know, we, I quit my day job and... I think a week and a half later, my wife was like, hey, so we're having a baby. And when I told my boss at the day job I was working at Duke at the time, she was like, you can stay. Like, you can take back your quitting because you should probably do that. <laughs> oh, you can take back so, your quitting. <laughs> so, you know, like uh, there's you, – we think about the things that we're risking. And, um, you know, if you're about to – jump across a ravine you're going to be focusing mainly on that ravine and the life you're risking right like and so when you're a freelancer you're you're risking your income all the time you know like i don't know if the podcast i'm working on i I don't know if it's going to get a season two like that's outside of my control and so you effectively get fired like you don't want to think in these negative terms but like in a certain way of thinking like I just, I get fired like every Tuesday, you know, like approximately, like I still, you know, like it's, it's, I don't really know what's going to come up next. So you do kind of have to have this like weird, um, okayness with uncertainty. Yeah. I have always really admired your ability to think outside the box or just your willingness to push the envelope a little bit when it comes to things like creative entrepreneurship, like education. And I'm wondering how that has changed for you. You talked a little bit about it, you know, going from having a day job to being a freelancer, but maybe in your career as a whole, how your approach to your work has changed, how you've adapted to the technology that is available, you know, filmmaking, I think in particular, um, you know, with folks filming a lot of things now on their phones, you know, maybe a a phone, cinematography hasn't quite reached you know marvel movies aren't being shot on iphone 12s but like we're getting there and so i'm wondering how your with with the experimental lens that you tend to have with things how has your approach changed over the years as you're adapting to all these new platforms and technologies i think you know the one of the things i heard early on was make more money than you spend every day that you can um which Again, that sounds super materialistic. It seems so silly to be talking so much about money, but that's just like what you end up thinking about, right? Um, so my take on that is to just try and have as much fun while I'm following that rule as possible, you know? And the numbers, of course, have to change. Like when I first moved to Durham, I I, I will not name who was involved in this, and it's totally cool. It was like so long ago. But like I had a photo gig that was supposed to pay me like 30 bucks, and I showed up and, and they were like, ah, like, you know, we'll pay you next time. And, and we'll just pay you double and just shoot both events. And then in the middle of the second event, um, and again, like, I'm not trying to dunk on this person. 
they were in a stressful situation. They came up to me and they were like, actually, I'm sorry. Like, you can just stop photographing. We can't pay you. And I was like, but I'm already here. Like, I drove out here. And it's like, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep shooting. And then uh, they were like, hey, you smoke? And I was like, yo, I mean, I just, you can't pay me in weed for this <laughs> gig. Like, I'm just, I need to pay rent. Like, like I can't have just moved here and now be, you know, forced to be a dealer <laughs> to get rent. <laughs> like, it's just an absurd situation. I was like, look, it's good. Don't worry about it. We're good. Okay, cool. So obviously, you know, you can't survive. Uh, you have to think like about increasing amounts of cash or whatever, you know, but you don't always have to think about increasing the cost of all the equipment involved and stuff like that. You know, you, you are correct in that like a lot of things can be done on an iPhone. Like, you know, I started out in like, you know, whatever, let's say it's like 2012, some 2011, somewhere around there, maybe a little earlier. Someone, I borrowed 600 bucks to get a camera and that camera and lens is what we shot. Um, eventually we shot beat making lab, which was a, a PBS digital series where it traveled all around the world, filming rappers and, and beat makers but the you know that that <laughs> to adjust with just shooting with one fixed lens you're like moving really close to people and moving really really far away there were times though that those constraints made me make more interesting stuff you know the fact that i didn't have a great zoom lens meant that i was getting really close to people all the time and couldn't be far away from the action that makes you change up your angles a bunch you couldn't even like it was just a fixed 50 millimeter lens so you can't zoom you know so it made me a very physical shooter that I shot with that for years. You you come really close to people and you go really, really far away and just it just gets you moving in interesting ways. So I'm a huge fan of technological constraints. And to answer your question about how I'm evolving with the changing tools, one huge thing is that I work a bunch more in teams. And there's that classic line of like, if you're the smartest person in a room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. I'm just always trying to work with people who are better than me at something, you know, whether you know, a lot of these people are, are folks around Durham that you'll know, you know, Mandy Paget, amazing, you know, she's a great editor and also just amazing at like making stuff run on time and figuring out how to, to practically get a production done. So we've collaborated a bunch, you know, Ish or Ned, these are like DPs in the area. And so for highly technical shoots, I now bring in somebody who's handling that more technical stuff. But to answer your bigger question of like, what am I doing about the shifting of technology and keeping up with it? The core for me is still the same of trying to find interesting angles on things. And no matter how big or small the budget is, your job's like to get a thing made and to get a thing done and to have fun. Your job isn't necessarily to have fun. It's not always going to be fun fun but like i've got to find some point of fun in there right like there might be some miserable stuff happening but for me there's got to be some way to have fun while doing it and hopefully that's coming through in the work does that change not sorry not does that change but how do you think about social media and the way that you are presenting your work as well uh so not just the change in technology in terms of uh cameras like you know camera equipment microphones that sort of thing but also like how am i creating to best adapt to the way that people are receiving the thing that i'm making as well yeah no it's it's a great question because i you know something i've been thinking about over the past few days is like this is going to sound very weird coming from me but like what's the point of a music video you know are we still even 
the music videos have had these interesting kind of eras, right? Like, so you can look like at the eighties and nineties when people were spending crazy amounts of money on music videos. And then eventually the market kind of fell out of the music industry, right? The music industry started making a lot less money. And there was this weird blip where like around 2010 where DSLR era started. So everybody's getting these relatively cheap, um, you know, I don't want to disregard the cost they do have, but you could get into the game for like 600 bucks. You're getting a pretty decent DSLR and you're maybe shooting something that is surprisingly close. I don't think it's, it's not necessarily the same quality of image, but it's surprising. People are, are I mean, in the most literal sense, people see it and they're surprised that you're able to do it, right? And so that second bump is an era where all of a sudden so many more people are able to make music videos, right? And that's that's kind of extended close up to now. But the biggest thing that's changed is the thing you're alluding to. And it's how people consume them, like how they're being made is is interesting. And the fact that there's many, 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 many more music videos um, than there were <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago. If you were like, oh, three of my friends have reduced have released music videos this year, that meant that you were in the mix and, you know, right musicians with record deals but like now it just means like oh you hang out with like releasing a music video is almost the same now as like recording yourself playing and singing guitar on a tape deck in the 80s you know it's almost an equivalently easy thing to do at the base level of doing it right so your question is really tricky because I do, to some degree, have to think of how people are going to see my work. That's super important, right? And especially since some of the stuff I do, I'm selling to clients, I have to think about how people are going to see it. And I have to think audience first. Like, I can't just think about the client. I've got to think about who's watching this and how are they going to see it. At the same time, you don't want to psych yourself out. So I am constantly trying to find spaces where, you know, you mentioned Tune and Law, so I'll get really Durham-specific, right? Tune, a.k.a. Corel, a.k.a. Lord Fess, we made so many projects together and it was an environment where not every project had to hit. And, and all that's when I say hit, it's in the relative sense, right? For where his career was at the time, right? Um, it is very, very, very hard to make a music video that is definitely going to be a hit. Mm. I, I don't know how to do that actually, you know? And if, but so I encourage people to be like, you know, who do you need to see this music video? What's what's actually like valuable for you, right? And let's get in an environment where we make four or five music videos together. And then we can get really weird. And we can be really experimental. And you don't care if three of them don't work. If two of them really, really work. You know, and depending on your relationship with the artist, like that's that could shift what percentage you need to have hit. Right. Um, but that's where I think stuff gets really interesting. I, I, you know, anytime I feel like, Oh, I know what I'm doing as far as there's different kinds of confidence with this stuff, but like, so it's good to be confident and be like, I'm executing something that I'm really into. And I love that feeling of feeling like, Oh, this is going to go, this is going to work. There's something here. I love that feeling. There's a second kind of thing that I'm wary of, which is I've noticed that if there's a time <laughs> that I say like, oh, I'm I'm good at what I do. I'm 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 that dude. Like I'm doing it. 
the rug's about to come out from under me <laughs> anytime I've had that feeling. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Is there a uh, music video yeah. that uh, that people might know where you felt like going into it? Not necessarily that you were feeling yourself, but you were just like, I, I like this concept. I think this has a lot of potential and you were able to execute it and and it did what you thought it would do. Yeah, so to, to be really clear, you're asking about one where I was talking about the good version of that, where I, I feel like, like I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about like the concept. Yeah. And it's like the, t- the the moment is working. Right. I will say that when we watched playback on North Cat, I was going to ask. I mean, that that yeah. feels like the obvious answer, but yeah. Yeah, when we watched that, I mean, I didn't know it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be like, you know, and a lot of this has to do with the quality of the song. Um, I didn't know it was going to be like. DJ Jazzy Jeff retweeting the video and like, you know, um, it really, really going millions of hits on Facebook. When we watched that back, we all knew it was something though. We all knew it was something. And then another one that was recent that didn't do numbers, but that I just feel really happy with. We just did a video for Kane Smigo, Colored Green Music, where we built the city of Durham out of cardboard and Jigetto made this crazy mask. And like once we watched that composite, I think we all knew it's a different kind of thing. Like I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, this is gonna make us, you know, known. But I did feel like, oh, we really did what we wanted to do, and everybody I think is really happy with that came when that came out. That is not connected to making any of us a particular amount of money, but it's a feeling that that you know, if I could get that feeling all day, I, I made this <laughs> I made this weird video about peeps where I animated peeps the, and the sugary they, snack the sugary snack yeah yeah and made like it's, it's called peep lord it's about this crazy peep monster <laughs> when i was making it i was so confident that my friends would laugh at it and they did and that's all that video is ever going to do is just make a certain group of my friends laugh and it's never going to turn into anything else but that feeling is just as good as any of the other feelings you know when you feel like, oh, I know what this video needs to do, and we're doing it, and I feel great about it. That's it's a good funny to say that because I, I think this was last night. Tommy and I, my, Tom, my roommate, we were watching these random. I don't know how we got down this rabbit hole. Of, I mean, YouTube is just a constant stream of rabbit holes. But we were watching these videos, and we were just like, we don't know what the hell's going on, but they're kind of funny. And the guys that make this must just really enjoy doing it. And you kind of got that. It was these weird animations. I think the guys, the YouTubers, Joel Haver is the account. And they were just so bizarre. And, and But you can tell, like, no matter how many streams they get, they're probably just having the time of their life putting these together. And I do think that there's a certain amount of, you know, you, you want to always be authentic in the stuff that you make. And so ideally, the more authentic you are and the, the more people recognize that and you know I think people gravitate towards that kind of work I think people can tell when something is authentic and when it's not and I I get the feeling that for the most part people are drawn towards authenticity and so you want to always prioritize that and it seems like that's something that you have done uh, maybe even in the face of you know shifting trends or you know working in a field like hip-hop where I think that people have a certain impression of what a hip hop music video looks like. And you have been able to flip that on its head numerous times. And 
And then from that, people continue to come back to your work because they're like, yeah, I'm going to get something I've, ne I've never seen before if I watch a kid ethnic produced music video. Well, you know, I'll say that I've definitely not always achieved um, the times that I haven't achieved what I wanted were when I went too conservative, you know, when um, I kind of felt like I knew how to do something and okay, I kind of get what the client wants and we're not all the way there with concept and, you know, they've, they've been competent videos, but this, this, the question of, of how to make authentic work is really hard. You know, it's, it's easy to say that you want to make something authentic, but there's a few things that can happen. One, you can get in a pattern where you've made a certain kind of thing or you're having a certain kind of inputs, right? So like Instagram can be amazing and it can be dangerous. Like it's Instagram is who you follow, right? Like what it is to some degree, but like there is a, there can, it's, it's not always easy to know who you are. You know, I don't, I don't, there, there's times when I, I get a weird vibe where I'm like, wait, is this authentic? Like, no, wait, I'm, I'm just stuck in a pattern. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not, and I do people, I think people are very drawn to authentic things, but if you think of the most authentic people that you know, one of them drives you insane, right? Like, they're totally being themselves and who they are makes you crazy. Yeah. Right. And I don't fully know how to, I, I'm not saying anything clear with that, except that um, I do think that people are drawn to being authentic. And I think that's what we should all be. It's a concept that's hard to put into practice sometimes because sometimes you're going to do something authentic and then it's tied to vulnerability. Right. So if I make something and it's like 70% good, right. And okay, like it's reasonably um, received. Uh, anybody who sees it feels like, oh, the person who made this is a competent video maker. That's not going to hurt my career. That's just like, it's almost like it didn't happen, right? Like if it's like, it's just a thing that gets done for money, right? If I go all out and make something really weird, it can happen that people are just going to be like, I don't like that. And maybe it doesn't even work. Maybe maybe there's two possibilities. One is that I have this I'm trying to execute a weird vision and it doesn't work. And that feels terrible when when something's not working, right? Cuz you know, this whole team, it's so different from like I mean, it feels terrible no matter what the the art form is, but film is such a collaborative art form. And even when I'm working with what is for practical purposes a no budget video, which, you know, they're not no budget, but the amount of money they're making compared to like the amount of food we're eating as a crew, like that budget starts looking really small real quick, you know? Even then, the artist has put in their time, the crew has put in their time, I've put in time. And so it's so hard when stuff doesn't work. And so it is tricky to stay kind of quote unquote authentic, you know? And that's the ideal. And I'm happier when I'm doing that. But I have had some misses, man. And sometimes those misses hurt. And they can throw you for like, it's not like, oh, for me, and this is, I'm not saying this is how people should be. I'm just describing a unfortunate situation. I'll be like, oh, cool. For eight months, I'm just going to feel terrible and and not take risks. Great. Here we go. You know? Um, so I, I'm really intrigued in figuring out how we can make ourselves 
create authentic work and what kind of practices help us create that work. And I know for me, I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm raging against Twitter or whatever, but like if I'm on Twitter all day, that doesn't fill my cup in the right way. Um, now, I actually do know people who, who are really amazing at being online either, all the time, and they don't seem to be, you know, that's, they seem to be totally able to do everything that I wish I could do. Um, so I'm just speaking of myself. But I have found that, like, I okay, if I really... directly to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's up to you. But, but you know, for I could just... Oh, the only thing I really know is, like, that I know it messes me up. And uh, But if I carve out time to force myself... You know, if I haven't written for a while and I'll write and it's like wow, this is all really crappy. And, but if I keep at it and I keep pushing the same, this happened the other day. I, I walked downtown with a notebook and I started writing and I could feel that it was all crappy. And eventually I broke through and wrote down a new thought to me. I don't remember what it was. Hopefully I can find the notebook. I wrote a thought that was new to me and I felt my head clearing. And it, it's just, this is such a cliche to say, but it's like having that discipline to go through these processes does help you pull out authentic material. Something that I've been wrestling with a lot when it comes to authenticity and how to present it is my hometown and your longtime home of Durham and how it's changed over the last decade or so. For me, coming into uh, the the scene, so to speak, the the down the growing downtown, working with Gabe at Runaway around you know sort of 2010, 2011. Uh, through the end of the decade, Durham has transformed in a number of ways. And I know it's something that you and I talk about all the time um, because of how it's, you know, shaped the way that we think about our home, but just also think about the way that this is a microcosm or a representation of the way that America is transforming in numerous ways. And I'm wondering if, um, if there are things that in the last decade that you are particularly like proud of or excited about with the way that Durham has changed. Um, and then maybe something that you're like, man, we really messed that up. Or like, I, you know, I wish we could take that back or we didn't, we didn't quite execute that the way that I thought we would uh, when all this stuff happened or started, you know, 10 years ago. Man, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm, I really moved here 10 years ago and as far as Durham proper, you know, and um, I, I often think of, you know, my, my kids were all born here. My wedding was at Tundura down the road. You know, it, it's just like, like it, many life events have happened since I've come here. Um, I, I, do sometimes think of myself as a guest here and I don't think not in the negative sense that I've been like excluded or anything like that, but more in just the sense that I want to be really respectful of the folks who were here uh, before and were doing tons of cool work way before I got here and important work and all of those things. So 
it's interesting because ten years is a very long time, and new humans have come into this earth in our family in that time. But I, I also just try to, you know, uh, make sure and respect that that other folks have been doing the work here a long time. The question is challenging for me because I, I, I hesitate to be dismissive. It's, it's easy to be like, like I've seen these, these things that are like, oh, Durham is over because this per- certain building was put up or whatever. And I don't believe that at all. Not for a second. I, and I, I don't think, I mean, I get those, what those, what those folks are saying, you know, when they say that. That used to be me pretty strongly, I think for a lot of the decade was like, this is, this is all bad. All growth is bad. Everyone moving here is bad. Just like, you know, get off my lawn. Let's put up a wall. Like I I was pretty adamantly against any change. And it was like, it was uh, not healthy. I don't think. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it's a really tricky question. And I want to be very careful with um, a certain subtlety here is I'm actually not talking about people who who are from here who were against change. Mm. I'm talking about folks who moved here. And yeah, that's actually, you just raised a really important distinction and I'm happy to talk about either of these paths, but, but you're speaking from the point of view of someone who's been here the whole time. And I should have been clear in that this is a very important distinction that I'm talking about folks who move here around the same time I did, who maybe are like, oh, the city's over, I'm out or whatever, you know? Um, we can all make our own decisions about where to stay or go or all that kind of stuff. I'm not judging anybody for, for that type of thing, but I am saying like, that almost feels like it disregards things that were here before, you know, and continue to be here. And the other thing is like, it's, it's, I, I, I respect that feeling and I understand that feeling. And I, I also feel that feeling of like, when I walk downtown, I'm like, Oh, it, this doesn't feel like a place that could birth a new pinhook, hmm. Right. When the, like these, it doesn't feel necessarily like what, what are the chances that in that, um, you know, another club like that is going to pop up downtown in the current environment. It seems pretty hard, right? So those things are definite downers for me. Um, what I mean when when I say that I don't like, and again, I'm primarily talking about folks who've moved maybe around the same time as me or later or earlier, or whatever. But like, I'm not I'm not speaking about people who have lived here their whole lives. It, it's it's a little too easy of a narrative to complain about some of these things without being politically active and i'm also not complaining i'm not i'm not speaking about people who've been politically active fighting against these things and they're frustrated that they came to pass despite all their hard work i'm talking more about like like people like myself who who i you know went through a chunk of time of attending city council meetings and realized like wow i i haven't been doing that at all before this you know and so I'm specifically talking about a sliver that's like, if you have the time to be politically active, and I, I include myself in this, I'm not as politically active as I should be. Um, you can't just dismiss a city because a building pops up. You know, like you either got to put in the work. Um, I mean, basically the answer is that, that we should all be putting in the work. And I, I'm not, again, this is such a delicate thing because I would never say that to someone who's from here. Mm. I would also not say that someone who's working at it but what i am saying is like before just dismissing your city because something's happened in one particular area um it doesn't mean that you have to feel that it's a good thing but like that you know 
if like me, you haven't been doing all you can <laughs> to, um, to make the city what you want it to be. Like, I think all of us can be doing more. And I think people who've moved here more recently, um, which oddly, I, I, even though, again, even though it's 10 years, I consider myself fairly recent compared to some folks. Um, I don't want to have moved here and then complain about it. Does that make sense? That distinction? Totally. Yeah. And I think you're right to say that there are just so many nuances to the conversation around like who a city belongs to and sort of who yeah, has the right really to um, exclaim these various things. And uh, so, yeah, it is, it is super complicated. Even for me, my, I feel like my perspective changes on a week to week basis based on who I talk to. You know, I, I finally got a chance to meet some of our, neighbors here on Holloway street. And it was like, man, like these people are super interesting and, um, you know, have like done pretty cool things in their life. And, uh, you know, some of them aren't from Durham and like got here by way of Duke. And, you know, I am a person who has frequently like judged Duke students and people that, you know, are associated with Duke in some way for being gentrifiers or disrespectful and, you know, to, the the larger Durham community and and so it's like you know you can make these broad generalizations about what you think is happening or or who you think is committing these acts but then you get on the ground level and you start to actually have conversations with people and it's like man this is actually way more complicated because I wouldn't I wouldn't wish any of these people away from Durham like they bring incredible gifts and skills and life stories to this tapestry. And that's ultimately for me, what I think Durham is and should be is like a rich tapestry of diverse perspectives. And so if they are bringing more of that to Durham, who am I to say they don't belong here? That doesn't, you know, that, that is, I think where like the distinction between individuals coming here and like certain, you know, market forces or like other mm. sort of larger, more intangible entities make their presence known that's i think where it's it starts to get the, the the water starts to get muddier for me and it's like harder for me to fully articulate how i feel about something because you're right it is just a building going up but there's like something about a particular building owned by a particular group valid that you know that you're like okay what does this say about what where this neighborhood is headed and the types of businesses that move into it you know what does that say about how this neighborhood will change and what type of jobs will be available and and that sort of thing so yeah but it, that doesn't remove the complicated nature of the conversation but it it does start to you know depending on the whether you're looking at a, at a micro level or a macro level yeah changes the way the perspective uh, a little bit you know, based on what you just said, like I should soften my position. You're you're changing my mind about a certain thing, actually. And and yeah, I think maybe I'm overreacting to like what I just don't want. I here here's what I sh I should I should be. I you're, you've helped me clarify a thought, really. And let's proverbially like just throw out what I said before, and maybe 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 this is the the thing that that um is a clearer thought that you've helped get me to, which is I just don't want people to give up on the city, you know, and. I can say that without dismissing anyone's feelings, right? Like, and especially like the the 
incredibly important legacy feelings that that folks have um and here we're going to quickly get out of my depth but i don't think it's possible to have a really real conversation about this stuff without talking about housing and reparations and you know if if housing was affordable and if there wasn't the racial divide that is the as we know the historic residue of America's original and many following sins that results in black folks not having as much money as they deserve for the work they have put into the world. I think the discussion around Durham would be so different, you know, like if, if there wasn't a racial split that caused some people to be more likely to not be able to afford housing here and cause some people to, you know, and I'm, I can be very specific, and it's not only black folks, but it's definitely black folks are included in the groups that have been <laughs> excluded and primarily excluded by the American system. It sounds weird to go so macro on a discussion of one town, but how different would the discussion be if there were just huge numbers of if there were even more amazing black businesses being created now in downtown Durham. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think that your that this problem is certainly not unique to Durham. And that's why I prefaced all this with saying like Durham is this, you know, I, I think Durham has represented a certain shift for a lot of small to mid-sized towns throughout the country that have faced a certain amount of growth, but that also have a diverse population that is not equally receiving the benefits of said growth. And, you know, I, I, I wonder if this sort of gets me thinking about Durham and, and what it means to be a part of the Durham community. And I'm wondering for you, uh, having been, you know, being the the son of, of immigrant parents and having a, a mixed race household yourself now, um, also coming from that, yeah. thinking even broader outside of Durham, what what do you think that it, it means for you? Because I feel like you constantly bring very unique perspectives to these topics that we've covered today. And just like one of the things I really enjoy about conversations that we have is the amount of perspective that you're able to bring for a given topic, whether it be, um, you know, education, jobs, traveling, living in a city, being a citizen. Um, you know, we haven't had the opportunity yet to go through your entire work history, but like, you know, working at 17 magazine, is just like a pretty, <laughs> you know, like it's a pretty unique thing for people that um, at least that I know and, uh, you know, working on a cruise ship and then, you know, making, you know, music videos for local rappers and just like, you know, now having it's a, a weird podcast. Resume. Yeah, like <laughs> having this podcast with, with Ted and um, I don't know, there's just like this, this um, enormous variability of your uh, experience and your perspective. And I'm wondering how you're able to, I don't know, like rat, not rationalize, but like bundle all those things up and then like use those experiences to 
articulate what it means to whether it be like be a citizen of Durham, be a person that works in multimedia, um, you know, a, a a citizen of this country. Like, what do we? How do you think all these this this variability has shaped the way that you sort of like present yourself to the world mm. in, in your day to day life? Yeah, it's it's a really tricky question, man. You know, I think of myself as a person who has made mistakes in many locations and fields. <laughs> and in that process, I've gotten to kind of see what it's like to see the world from different perspectives to some degree. You can never actually know what someone else's perspective is. Like 100% empathy is very, very, is like a super ideal. But like I have, I've gotten to spend time with a lot of different people. Man, it's a, it's a really interesting question because you, you're 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 touching on something that's almost like you know related to things like code switching because we're all such different people in such different in, in different circumstances, right? Like I'm gonna you know after this call I'm gonna walk in the house I'm gonna speak uh, you know imperfect Japanese to my family and and then you know send a formal email and I'm saying really obvious things but like we're we're all such such different different people in different situations and so if you're asking and feel free to jump in and, and and adjust this answer if it's veering too far but if you're asking how does that fit into a community which seems to be kind of like the the bigger question of what you are asking like how do you fit like I, I always think the way you fit into a community is by listening and um and trying to do what you do the best you can. Like those are the, that's like the whole ingredient. That's like all of it, right? Like listen, be respectful and try to do what you can and have fun with people and, you know, break bread with them. And you're asking this at such an interesting time because I myself have had a feeling of like, how does, how do you make your life feel like it's adding up to something in this quarantine year? Mm. You know, I, I've definitely had times this year where I'm like, what is this adding up to? There's like a cumulative feeling. And this is an interesting tension, right? Like one expression of like a cumulative feeling of things adding up to something would be like accomplishments, right? Another might be some internal thing of like, oh, I feel like I'm a little better at what I did yesterday than I'm better today than, than I was yesterday at this thing or that thing. And then the other kind of thing that's outside of all that is this idea of being in the moment and what I want to feel in a community is that I can go out in that community, be in the moment and be okay. You know, that no one's going to harm me or even get like excessively angry at me. Like if I say something dumb in this podcast, <laughs> hopefully people will be, <laughs> you know, uh, Twitter being what it is, who knows, but like hopefully people will be forgiving. And like community for me is a lot about forgiving. Um, that doesn't mean that you let... If everyone knows that there's a certain amount of forgiving, then people can be free. You know, that doesn't mean that things don't have consequences. I, I'm assuming that's a Salim original. I just I made it up, so it, it might also be incredibly stupid five minutes from now. So take, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. It may, hopefully, I didn't steal it from somebody. If I did, uh, you know, thank you to them. But also, many things that sound great in the moment sound terrible five minutes later. So we'll see. But I I I do think that you know it doesn't mean that. 
every apology is going to be accepted or all these, you know, all these, all these like, you know, current things that, that people are talking about that are, you know, all super important. But I do think that like having a community where people are um, trying not to make mistakes and are allowed to make mistakes is such a huge part of community for me. And I feel like, um, you know, I can't say enough how welcoming Durham has been to me um, in a certain way. This is going to like, uh, you know, there may be good or bad things about this. I don't know. But like, the, I, I think um, despite like, you know, age differences among the people involved and all that, like there was almost like a certain uh, <laughs> like it's almost like a certain class around like class in the sense of like a, a school class around like a, a group of things that were kind of coming up around 2010, you know, and I don't know why I was welcomed into that class, but it feels lucky to have been in that class. And, um, you know, I want to loop back and make sure that I'm thinking about, I, I'm answering your question in the sense of like, for any of us having done the things we've done in life, which are all more varied than they may at first appear. You know, the person who has had the exact same job for 40 years has a completely different life from, ha- has a different experience that they've gained by that. Mm-hmm. Like to do one thing repeated for 40 days is a different thing to have done one thing repeated for 41 days. And those two people have different experiences, you know? So everything, every kind of experience is variable if you dive deep enough into it or if you think about it enough or if you observe it with enough care. Um, and so looping back to your question of community and and how all that fits in, I, I think it's pretty much the same no matter what your background is. But I think what we all want is a place where we can you know, feel respected, um, not in the sense of like being famous or something goofy like that, but just feel like, you know, people are going to treat us with respect. We're going to, you know, be allowed to make some mistakes because getting back to your question of authenticity, like being authentic means you're going to mess some things up or Mm. you're going to say something that's not, you're going to tell some story that's, if you're, if you're, if you're really, here's, here's a great way to think about it. A comedian when they're in an audience of comedians and they're kind of trying out material, they're not funny all the time. Like some of their jokes fall really flat and they still need some work. Right. But that's a great community and that's a great creative community a place where you can build yourself into, to the kind of person you want to be. That's not a community where people are saying known hurtful things to each other. That's a very different thing. I'm certainly not expressing like some kind of weird permission to say crazy stuff without circumstances, but, um, Yeah, that's that's a very roundabout answer, but I, I do think that the thing that ties kind of authenticity to community and varied past experience is just like people listening to each other and allowing each other to make mistakes. Yeah, and then changing and when someone else points out a mistake, like trying to trying to fix that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that that's a place where in in communities across the country we have lost our way a bit. Is giving people grace and an opportunity to make a mistake or or grow and learn like you said i mean that's seems like every week somebody is getting you know quote unquote canceled online for something sometimes worth worthwhile and then sometimes seemingly you know innocent or just like a mistake that one would make if they don't have an experience that would give them a different perspective and I think we're Twitter specifically, but just like internet culture in general has made it 
way too easy and you know for us to decide that like people you know have a everyone has this incredibly short leash and we're just like not allowed any mistakes because and and we're all irredeemable and um you know only get one one chance to i don't know exist in the world and you know i think one one interesting thing is um putting i think maybe i make the mistake of of worrying too much about like of talking rather than what I should be doing, even in a conversation like this, it occurs to me that maybe I should be focusing more on shining a light on how people are building communities where people help each other. Um, that stuff is all that good stuff is still happening. And I think it's easy for me myself to like get distracted and complain about like some of these negative gigantic forces. But I, I'm super fascinated by folks who, I mean, I think Monet um, in Durham, her work is amazing at opening conversations and i'd like to figure out how to get my brain to doing more noticing of those kind of bright spots and um kind of building up those bright spots and trying to reverse engineer bright spots um and switch my brain into doing more of that yeah i i wonder what it is that elicits like what it is about rage that is stronger, it seems, than uh, like genuine excitement or happiness. Because to your point, it does seem like like a, a thing that makes us happy online. We will, you know, favorite it or retweet it or repost it, and that's the extent of it. But if it's something we don't like, this was I actually saved. There was a tweet that you like quoted it was about um you know if you wanted to meet if you, if you wanted to have a conversation with every person in the world that had six fingers you would just you would tweet you know people all people have five fingers or every person has five fingers something like that and basically every person that had six fingers would come out of the woodwork to you know rebuke it or like stand up for themselves but you know it, like all the people who have five fingers would just be like, yeah, you know, you're right. Okay. Like, uh, you know, I'll favorite it and just kind of move on. And so I think that there's this, uh, I, I'm sure that there's, you know, there are behavioral psychologists that could tell us why, but I, I'm in the dark on what it is about like our, I guess it's maybe like when our identity is threatened or something about us that just like our, our rage on the internet seems to be amplified much more uh, than our genuine excitement. And that's unfortunate because um, it would be nice to return to a place where those happy moments are, are the thing, are overwhelming the discourse. And, you know, I mean, rage is obviously very productive at times um, when focused in the right ways. And it's, you know, often uh, people dismiss like the times of rage seems to have gotten amazing things done for people's freedom and, and things like that. I, I, I think that uh, the f what I'm really curious about every t every time in in these conversations where you know you've mentioned you're wrestling with something or like we're trying to figure something those are all the times I'm I'm super fascinated by right so like the the thing that I'm I really want to we're gonna basically be rebuilding in a very strange way not in a physical structure way but we have a restart a lot of people have had um, it's not necessarily a restart in the fresh start way but like. Many people are, are in terrible situations right now in Durham. We're not physically interacting with each other 
and we're that's the, that physical interaction is what's about to restart in mm-hmm. you know hopefully after we're all vaccinated to a certain percentage or whatever you know not to get into those those kind of debates yeah. but in my opinion that's like the thing that whatever the thing is that gets us you know all back able to interact and so um maybe a thing we can do is just just really focus on building the kinds of interactions that we want to have as a city going forward since we have this had this really again not positive insanely terribly bad um situation but it does mean that we we have a reason to start from zero and just really th- go into i really want to go into whatever's next with intention and try and figure out how we want the city to be and how we can just interact in positive ways as much as possible yeah i've had a couple conversations this week about that exact thing both on personal level and for some businesses and how they're thinking about you know what will it be like to have folks return to our physical locations and how do we reshape those interactions and how do we rebuild those communities even before we're allowed to you know is there a way to build digital communities that port easily back to the physical world and vice versa um, and not necessarily thinking about them as two separate things but how do we leverage the technology that we do have to have conversations with folks um, you know electronically and then use that momentum or that leverage to to your point, rethink how we're going to show up and be more intentional uh, in the physical spaces that we previously occupied. So I think that's a really good observation and way to think about what the near future might hold. Yeah, man, we definitely have a mission, you know? experiences like I mentioned before, I would love to close out the conversation um, by asking you what uh, what or who are some of your greatest influences as a multimedia producer, storyteller, um, you know, creative at large? Yeah, you know, um, goodness, there's, there's a ton. Um, I think really broadly, when thinking about um, influences that that influence my work, they're they're not necessarily filmmakers or that some of them are, some of them are media makers. They might not be doing things that are very similar to what I'm doing. You know, um, I can answer to who's who's influenced me recently. Like Boots Riley, sorry to bother you, was just like a amazing thing to see in that film. There's a tribute to Michelle Gondry. Uh, in the middle of the film, there's a stop motion and they, you know, he has a joking reference to some name that's almost like Michelle Gondry. And Michelle Gondry is a director who I'm not sure if you're familiar with their work, but but very unusual music videos. Did this film called um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, just super physical, hands-on. Yeah, super physical, hands-on strangeness. Uh, that That whole vibe. You know, the, his his music video DVD really influenced me. A filmmaker named um, 
Miranda July. Is that how you say her name? I don't know how to say her name, but it's Miranda July is how it looks when it's written out. Um, it's just like this unusual, she's an unusual uh, multimedia artist. Uh, again, like I, I'm really interested in, in when people are making art that the actual making of the art is very physical or unusual in the real world. Like my mm-hmm. favorite thing about North Cat is that people had to sprint in circles to make it like that really had to happen. Like it's not, you can't just click a mouse and have it happen. Right. Um, what about folks that are not in, in multimedia necessarily? Yeah. Um, let's see. Great question. So I just read a book by the writer, uh, Kelly link. Um, just very unusual stories. I think she's actually, I know she was educated in North Carolina. She might actually be from North Carolina. Very unusual kind of fantastical stories. I'm reading some Octavia Butler right now, which is, um, also just, you know, just amazing to see people really push. I'm reading her short story book. Um, I think it's called bloodlines, blood, something, um, I, the thing that binds them, I think, is they're, they're folks who are just really kind of trying to bend a medium and make highly unusual, very f- physical descriptions of fantastical things. Um, that's, that's super inspiring to me. The writer George Saunders um, had a great book called The Brain Dead Megaphone. It's another one. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Jim Henson, like all these kind of, and then lots of folks I know, Jigetto, you know, speaking of a Henson adjacent right. person, you know, in, in Chapel Hill, the puppeteer there, uh, my friend Juliana Vision, who is a filmmaker. Yeah, it's just, just it, again, these are all people who, when they make their work, uh, you know, the writers aside, and speaking of like the the filmmakers or multimedia people, something physical changes in the world in the process of them making their work. And that's that's beautiful and fascinating to me. That's super cool. Yeah, I have been thinking a lot more about, we alluded to this a bit when we were talking about social media and, you know, your, um, you know, you're influenced on those platforms by the people you follow. And a lot of your quote unquote authenticity comes from absorbing these influences and reimagining them through your own lens. And so I've been thinking a lot about that this year and the things that I'm reading and the things that I'm watching uh, as I'm working through building this podcast and this Buddy Ruski brand on the whole, like who who are my like quote unquote elders, so to speak in this medium and how do hmm. I become more familiar with their work and um, not to necessarily copy them or like rip no, no. off their stuff, but but just like, yeah. these are the things that I claim that I am interested in, you know, maybe I should be more diligent about uh, like understanding who came before me and what were their processes and yeah, who, who are experimenting in weird ways with storytelling and podcasting and um, or even just like creativity in general. I've, I've been listening to a lot of Dan the Automator produced stuff recently. Yeah, one of my, one of my favorite producers. Yeah, he just, he's one of those guys that, you know, I think a lot of people have probably heard songs that he's produced and just not known who he was. And, uh, but I find his, he's made, you know, approaches each project in a very particular way and seems to be very, um, he, he is both prolific, but also very intentional about the projects that he takes on. And I appreciate that approach to creativity because I do think right now, this is something that I 
struggle with constantly. I think I've posted something on social about this before the idea of like promoting the things that you've done versus making constantly making new work and like the balance of, um, you know, how to continue to be, you know, pushing new material out, but, but also like making sure that you're absorbing new influences and, and creating new work as well. And so with the, the downtime that I've had, I've, I've definitely tried to uh, absorb more and just not feel like I am committed to constantly posting, constantly like being on social. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm not doing a very good job, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just being more mindful of like, you can, you know, the good work will rise to the surface. It doesn't have to be constant work. And I've, I've also wondered with touching on what you're saying, how can, you know, to take a very like <laughs> outdated idea of this, there was a thing called like a blog ring back in the day where like blogs would commit to promoting each other. And it got a little silly where people were just like, you know, feeling compelled to post whatever rando stuff, anybody else in some gigantic blog ring. Had. But there's something there that's interesting. You know, there was a time when, when, you know, we, we chat about how like the kid ethnic squad and the runaway squad were basically a record label. I mean, almost a record label you know like and to the degree to which we were like intertwined with all these bands you know all these mcs i am curious like how could we you know you look at these great collectives and how being able to to promote things as a collective you know maybe you take some of the load off yourself if you're all promoting each other's work I'm just really intrigued by that and you know how can that's another way that like we we are in a particularly challenging situation in the south we're not near a giant hub I, you know people always say like oh you don't have to be in the big hubs but it is easier to meet other people in the field in a big hub it just is you know and that's um, where the money tends to gravitate towards and yeah yeah, so you're, yeah you know you're you're not you're working with a little bit less so people's you know attention is the south is a little bit lower on the list of places to yeah. check out when it comes to who's producing new things. And so, yeah, I think you're right that having some sort of, cause this is something, you know, Patrick Phelps McEwen, Tree City, we talked about this. I talked to Danny Blaze about this on our yeah. last podcast. Uh, uh, Amelia from Sylvanesso was posting about this on Instagram, all about this, the like amount of things that you're, constantly keeping up with as a creative you know you're not only just creating work but if you work independently you are you know your own business manager you're your own social media manager you are like your own booking agent you are you know your own uh, financial manager like there are all these other hats that you're wearing that you know i won't say get in the way of your creativity but are like you know part of the full spectrum of what you are trying to accomplish every day and so to your point to like have collectives that can ease some of that. Yeah. You know, American underground was a group that lightened the load of being a tech startup. Right. right? So how can collectives lighten our loads? That's, that's a question I'm really interested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, we've covered so much and I I really want to thank you for, uh, for your time and the wisdom that you, I mean, I feel really, not at all. It's been fun. It's fun to bounce around ideas with you. No, I, I agree. And it's like, these are the kinds of conversations that that you and I have. And one of the reasons that I enjoy doing this podcast is just, these are things that 
I'm very, these are conversations that I feel like I'm very fortunate to be a part of on a regular basis with people across Durham, you know, really, you know, across the country. And so to be able to share these conversations and give people an opportunity to basically sit in on what I find to be very interesting topics and, um, you know, the origin stories of very interesting people is a treat. And, and I've been, I was telling people what, before I got on, I was like, man, I'm, I'm pretty nervous about interviewing Salim. I think this is the first one where I was like sweating before I got on <laughs> no, just because man, I admire your work. And, um, no, I you know, appreciate I have, that, but uh, thank you. Yeah. So, so thanks again for being on and where should people go to, to find your work or follow what you have coming up? Yeah, kidethnic.com, K-I-D-E-T-H-N-I-C.com is, is where I tend to post stuff. And, you know, Instagram gets the most movement there. But I have been trying to figure out some way to move into, like, back to blogging and email newsletter e type stuff to, to try and get get to, to where we're all owning our own material a little more. We'll see. You're always experimenting with something. So I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> to, to hear you say that. Uh, well, thanks again for, for being on the show. And um, if you haven't already... Uh, for folks that are listening, definitely check out uh, what is now called Far Flung, yes. uh, Salim's podcast on uh, or through TED. Folks that are familiar with, with TED Talks, uh, TED has a, a few different podcasts, I guess, um, yep. that they produce. But this one is, you know, I, I can say with as little bias as possible that it, it's a really awesome show and um, you won't be uh, disappointed to, to check that out. So make sure to subscribe to far flung and 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 follow salim's work from from here on out thanks so much and the latest episode is uh, has a lot of shout outs to durham and soul city north carolina so um yeah i hope you all enjoyed if you hear it and thanks so much for having me on the show man of course all right y'all until next time this has been the buddy risky show we'll be seeing you